1 Timothy is really an exhortation to an individual. It's a letter, what we call epistles in Bible study. It's just a letter, and it's written to a fellow pastor, and he's exhorting him and encouraging him in particular matters. We have things like the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which tell us about the life of Christ. We have a book like Acts that tells us about the establishment of the early church. Well, the book of Psalms is a little bit different. In fact, Here's a little nugget for you. Some of you may be aware. Psalms doesn't have chapters, really. They're not chapters. They're psalms. It's a collection of psalms. And so it's not quite a hymn book, though we could sort of think of it like that. In some ways, it was used, many of the psalms were used in different festivals and feasts and celebrations that Israel would have. But they're really reflections, they're poems. Some of them are songs, some of them are just poems and poetic reflections of what God has done. They're bouncing off of biblical history. So the Psalms assume that you know something about the storyline and what God has been up to and how he's worked in the world. The Psalms, many of them are attributed to David. In fact, about half of the Psalms are attributed to David, or at least there's very good reason to think that David wrote about half of the Psalms, which leaves about half that were not. And we're going to jump into a series of Psalms here that are ascribed to Asaph. So if you open your Bibles to Psalm 73, you're going to see something here that's kind of interesting. Maybe you've noticed this before, maybe you haven't. In your Bibles, do you see big letters just above Psalm 73? What's it say? Book, th- it says Psalm 73. Thank you. I heard somebody say that. <laughs> <We're>, <laughs> you're in the right spot. Good. Good. Above that, <laughs> there's probably somewhere where it says book three. All right? Book three. And it's widely recognized that there's an order and a structure and a flow within the Psalms. So just to remind you, the Psalms really, there's a book within the book, or books within the book, sort of like the Bible itself. We have a book, the Bible, but then we have individual books, 66 individual books within the book. And so what we have in the Psalms is an uneven division of five books. And there's reasons why we would say this, and there's discernible patterns and themes that we can see. So this marks, and part of the reason I left off last year at Psalm 72 was it was the end of book two. And so now we're beginning book three. So let's just review for just a moment. Many of the Psalms in books one and two are attributed to David. And this uh, main idea of pulling uh, from research done by Palmer Robertson, very, very helpful book uh, called The Flow of the Psalms. And this is an an adaptation of some of his work. And he says the main theme in 1 through 41 is confrontation. Even the psalm that we read this morning, there's so much about confronting the world and David's inner struggle. God had made a promise to him to build him a house. He was the next one in line for the covenant promises of God. But it didn't come easy. It was a struggle, and he had enemies from every side, and so it's reflections of David with this confrontation of God's promise working out. And then book two is similar to book one, but what book two begins to do is there's a lot of references to the king, to Israel, and to Jerusalem, to Zion, and so there's so much reflection on this kingdom being set up. So Whereas book one is a little bit more focused on the individual, book two is a little bit more focused on the nation of Israel in particular and this kingdom that's going to be set up. Well, that leads us to book three, 
and as you can see the word that describes book three, is devastation. And so y'all are like, man, glad I'm here today. Get to start on this. The good news is it's really positive at the end of Psalms. So in like 2027, 2028, something like that, we're gonna have a great time and it's gonna be all positive and great when we get to the end. But in book three, you're really asking the question, what went wrong? What happened? If you read places like 2 Samuel 7, it's so positive. God makes a promise. David, I'm gonna build you a house. You're not gonna build me a house. I'm building you a house. Incredible. And your line is gonna move on and on and on. There's gonna be a king established. And then it just doesn't come about quite the way that everybody expected it to come about. And so Psalm 73 is introducing us to this idea of what do we do when we have unrealized, unfulfilled promises? And I think many of us could ask that question today as well. So much promise and so little realization so far. Sure, let me be clear, Israel had some highs and lows. They had some really high highs. If you read about uh, Solomon's early days, I mean, the conquest, that Israel was so wealthy. Other nations are coming to Israel. It's a model to the nations, but it's a relatively short window and a relatively short amount of time. So what happens? They forget God. Idolatry, injustice, flood the land. Ultimately, the kingdom's divided. So you had one Israel. Now you end up with two Israels, and one's called Israel, one's called Judah, and you end up with two nations, they end up fighting with each other, they both end up getting conquered, and it turns into just a big mess. It's about 500 years of biblical history in a nutshell. We don't know exactly when these Psalms were written, but we know that they're reflecting on a grand disaster in Israel. It's a mess, and what are we gonna do? So for those of you here this morning and you're concerned because the world looks like a mess, and you're thinking, what are we going to do? Just know we've been asking these questions for at least 3,000 years, probably longer. It's been this way for a long, long, long time. So let's get into Psalm 73 today. I want to read the whole psalm, and then we'll come back. I'll give you an outline, and we'll spend a little time diving into it. A Psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they're not in trouble as others are, they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Their pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out from fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But, this is a major turning point in the psalm, pay attention here. But when I thought how to understand this, 
it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when my heart was pricked, I was brutish and arrogant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to your glory. Whom am I, have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell all of your works. What a story this psalm takes us through. A few questions as we get started this morning. This is a story of a guy who almost lost his faith. And the reason is he's looking around and he's watching bad people do well. And he's discouraged by that. For you, have you ever watched somebody, maybe somebody very close to you, get away with something and it profits them in the end and there doesn't seem to be any recourse or consequence? How does that make you feel? It angers you, doesn't it? Somebody cheats on their taxes, they get away with it. They tell a little lie and they get the sale. They fib on their resume just a little bit and they get the job. Students, you have that one in the class that continues to cheat on their tests and their assignments and they get better grades than you. How's that make you feel? You may ask the question, why do the wicked win? Why are the wicked winning? Some of my fellow fishermen and boaters out there may appreciate this. If you've ever been out on the water, we have these slow zones around here where you have to idle. And if you're really trying to get somewhere, if you think the fish are really going to be biting up in the next creek, it's really, it's really a long time to be idling through these little slow zones. And then you watch some guy go flying through. And I just secretly think, I really hope the Marine police are sitting right on the other side of the bridge. But they usually aren't. And it's not that I'm overly concerned about making a wake in my own boat. I just don't want to be going slow. I'm jealous. That's the only problem that I have. You've had the same issue on the interstate, right? You really want to get there. You really want to go a lot faster than you're going. You watch some guy fly by you. You're like, I hope they get him. But they usually don't. They usually don't. They usually get away with it. What if we lived in a world where the immediate consequences of your disobedience to the Lord were felt and realized? What if we lived in a world where every time you sped on the interstate, you got a ticket? What, what if we lived in a world like that? What if we lived in a world where only bad people got cancer? What if we lived in a world where only cheaters and liars had car accidents? What if we lived in a world where only murderers got murdered? What if we lived in a world where only mean people got COVID? What, what would that world be like? It would seem right in many ways to us. But as from the Bible Project, Tim Mackey often says about the book of Ecclesiastes, which we've studied here, a saying that I've adopted, there's a glitch in the system, isn't there? It doesn't always work. The character consequence, it doesn't always match. 
and can leave us asking the question, why do the wicked prosper? And maybe, if they're going to win, maybe I just need to join them. Maybe I just need to do that thing too. This is the path that the psalmist is on. He says, his feet had almost slipped. It almost got me. I was so close. I was so close. We've been here before, if you've been in our psalm study for a little bit. I was just curious. So I glanced back through. I have a document where I've got all of our psalms that we've studied and the, just the titles, sermon titles. And I, just, I was just glancing back through because I remember, I think we've, we've looked at this many times before, a couple of these. Psalm 17, the title of our sermon that day was Wrong Treatment for Right Living. Same kind of idea. Psalm 52, when the wicked seem to win, just remember they don't. Psalm 58, judgment for wicked judges, those who are in position of power and yet they don't use that for God's purposes. This psalm takes us through this journey and I want to walk through it with you. I want to start in the middle, which is a little bit unusual, but I want, I want you to see this turning point. Verse 16 but when I thought how to understand this, I'm pondering the success of the wicked and my own situation. It seemed to me a wearisome task. It's wearing me out, man. Verse 17, until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Something happened. What happened? He went to the sanctuary of God and he had his perspective completely reset. We'll walk through two different big points today and a couple of points underneath that. The first big point is simply this, verses one through 15. When you forget God, when God's not in view, when you have spiritual amnesia of sorts, when you forget God, what happens? Well, wickedness suddenly seems worthwhile. Well, maybe I'll just do that thing. This is why he says he almost slipped. He almost fell into it. He almost fell for it, but he didn't. It's a close call with what we would call apostasy, leaving the faith. He almost found himself walking down this path of unbelief, but he didn't. So let's explore that a little bit. The wicked seem to have these five things that really everybody wants. Let's look at it. The wicked seem to have wealth. Look at verse three. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Why do the wicked have so much? Many of you are big sports fans like I am. Do you ever look at some of these contracts that professional athletes sign? You know, it's, it's just like unquantifiable in my mind how many zeros we're even talking about. And it just multi, multi, multi-million dollars. And more than once I've thought, I just don't think they're starting an orphanage with that. Now there's some great sports figures out there. There's some people doing really good things with the resources. I don't mean to say they're not. But oftentimes I just think, Man, I would love to see that in the hands of people that love the Lord, of people that are going to do good in the world, but so often it's not. They have the wealth. Sometimes we like to talk about health and wealth preachers around here, rightfully so. They've earned that bullseye. But the reason they're so successful is because they're talking about the two things that you want too. Think about it. When you pray, what do you pray for? It's a lot of times it's related to health and wealth. Maybe not wealth in the sense of greed, but wealth in the sense of provision, at least. 
being able to pay your bills, jobs, these are important things. They're not wrong. So I think that's one of the reasons why the health and wealth movement is so successful is it taps into something that we all really need and desire. So they have it. They have wealth. Look at their prosperity. I'm looking. I'm envious. I see myself living in this little shack with nothing. And then I look at these bad people that seem to have so much. Not only that, they have health. Look at verse four. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Now we have to contextualize a couple of things here. If you want to give somebody a compliment in our culture in 2022 in the United States of America, you wouldn't walk up to that person and say, you look great, your body is fat and sleek. (laughs) All right, just... And on top of that, your eyes are swelling out of your head through your fatness. Like, totally doesn't connect with us. What's he saying is an expression that just means they have plenty. The poor people were very skinny because they didn't have enough. And if they had a drought, if they had some sort of disease that wiped out the livestock, they didn't have anything. The wealthy had storehouses and provisions. So they always looked good. They were plump. They had plenty. But the poor, not so much. So they have their wealth. They have plenty. They have health. They don't seem to have the same struggles that other people do. Look at verse five. They have peace. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They they just don't seem to have their same troubles that we have. Now, I would argue here that the psalmist is intentionally provoking us and looking through things through lenses that aren't necessarily a biblical lens, all right? If you've probably, uh, some of of us grew up with the uh, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous show. They have versions of that that are on like Instagram, TikTok, and things now. Uh, Just tours of these extravagant homes. And I think many of us think the super wealthy, that's just what they do. They just have a yacht that's in the clear water in Italy and that they, you know, just do that all day and, you know, have whatever they want, drinking wine and whatever. And I think some of us think the wealthy just have it made. They've got it all. And you think, well, that must be nice. I'm just trying to get my Walmart pickup done and get home to my house full of spilled Cheerios and goldfish ground into the carpet. Just, I'm just trying to live. And then look at them. And it leads you to this place of thinking, they don't have the same kind of problems that I have. Now, again, I think the psalmist is provoking here a little bit because I think deep down we all know that nobody has no troubles, right? It may be, it may be underneath. It may be buried under a layer of materialism and things to where you don't necessarily see it quite so evident. But nobody has a perfect life. Let's just be real with that. So they have wealth, appear to have everything they need. They have their health. They're not having the same kind of problems that we're having. They're not having to scrounge for their next meal. They have peace. They have boldness. And it's boldness particularly about denying the existence of God. Verse six, therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. They're not even trying to hide who they are. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. 
Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. They just are bold about their unbelief in God. You've probably heard this over the years with different people that would say something like, if God is, if God is real, may, he can strike me down right now. Just this open defiance of God. These people say, I don't need God. That's an ancient myth, a crutch for the feeble-minded, something for the weak. I don't need that. I've got everything I need. I don't need God. And the psalmist is looking and thinking, wow, they really do seem like they're getting it all. They have wealth, health, peace, boldness, influence, power. Look at verse 10. His people turn back to them. They find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is their knowledge with the most high? People are following them. People are turning to them. The wicked seem to be winning. They're gaining influence, cultural influence. Even the righteous, even the good people that you thought wouldn't turn are turning to follow these wicked people. Verse 11, they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge of the most high? So it goes something like this. If God, if God really knows what's going on, then why isn't doing, he doing anything about me? You see an atheist who's bold in their atheism. And they say, if God is real, why doesn't he stop me then? Because I'm convincing a lot of people that God isn't real. The argument goes something like that. In production, many of you are involved in businesses of some sort, project management, things like that. There's a little triad that you probably work through. Something like this. You can have something that's good, something that's fast, or something that's cheap. But you can only pick one, maybe two. You can't have all three can have something good, fast, and cheap. Well, the theological version of that is this. Can God be knowledgeable, loving, and able? All right? Can he be knowledgeable? Does he really know what you're going through? Well, if he really knows, maybe he doesn't care. Maybe he's not loving. Or if he knows, maybe he is loving, but he just can't do anything about what you're going through. And you can see you could take any one of those, subtract it out, and come up with a logical explanation for God. And so this has been called the Christian's dilemma, the, what's the theological word, theodicy. How do you put all this together? And the Bible obviously affirms that all three of these things are absolutely true, but it can tie people in knots. God does know. God is loving and he is able. And I think the answer comes ultimately in the cross of Christ, the suffering Christ went through, and then the ultimate end, which we're going to get to in just a second. So hold that thought for just a moment. So when you forget God, all of a sudden wickedness starts to seem worthwhile. Well, maybe, maybe I'll just go along with the crowd. When that happens, holiness can seem pointless. Verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. In vain, why have I done this? Why have I kept my heart clean? Why did I study so hard for the test and I didn't get a good grade? And the guy sitting beside me over here, he just cheated and he did really well. Why did I do all this? What was the gain? What was the benefit? What's the ROI, the return on investment? It's negative. It's not worth it. Maybe I should cheat too. Maybe I should steal. Verse 13, I've kept my heart clean, washed my hands in innocence. But then look at this, verse 14, for all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. Do you remember that same word was just used um, up earlier? The wicked are not stricken. 
verse five, but he is stricken. See the contrast that he's drawing. I've been stricken, I'm having troubles. If I go down this path, verse 15, if I speak thus, if I let myself keep going down this path, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. The word he uses there is actually a really strong covenantal word. It means I would break covenant, like a divorce. I would have betrayed my God had I stayed on that track. So what has to happen? Well, he goes to the sanctuary of God. I'll make a few comments on this just to make sure that we're clear. We're not told exactly what happens here. Maybe he receives some sort of direct revelation from God. That's certainly possible. Maybe it was conversations with the priests or the others who are attending there at the sanctuary, the temple. Maybe it was just being there. Just being there reminded him of God and of his faithfulness. Any of those are possible. Now, the church is not exactly the temple of the Old Testament. We know that. The temple was a special place in Israel and you had uh, where you had the presence of, of God in a unique way at the Ark of the Covenant. And it was a unique place. We're not the temple. This isn't a temple. This is a gathering of believers. I love our building. I love our grounds. I like sitting outside during the week, thinking about you all, praying for you, reading, walking, thinking. But at the end of the day, it's just a place. It's a place I really enjoy. And I'll, a couple of times I snuck back over here during the sabbatical and just sort of walked around, thought about you, sat out on the playground, and actually walked in here a few times too just to make sure it was still standing. <laughs> but it, when I came in, there's nothing, there's nothing necessarily unique and special. It's the people that make this place special, and it's what happened at this place. The preaching of the word, the faithful ministry of the gospel for so many years. I hope that as you come on a Sunday morning and we gather with God's people, I hope that there's something about just being here and being around other people that confess the same truth about the gospel that we confess. I hope there's something about that that just begins to reset your heart and mind. I hope that happens. It happens for me. It happened for me this morning as we were singing that song. I do believe, I will believe. Yes, these are my people. Yes, this is the message that I believe. And I hope that happens. It's exactly what happened for the psalmist. He's getting swept in this undercurrent. The undertow is pulling him out of worldliness, looking at the seeming success. He says, I'm not gonna trade it though. I went to the house of God, and then what happens? I perceive their end. He started to think long-term, really long-term. Some of you are familiar with the, the little economics uh, teaching tool that many professors have used over the years. And it says, uh, it goes like this. If you were offered a million dollars right now or a penny that doubles every day for 30 days, which one would you pick? Now, most of us can't do the math fast enough to answer that question. But the answer is you would take the penny that doubles because it's gonna end up being over $5 million in the end. Pretty amazing return. But this is a similar situation. You're trading something for something eternal, though. See, it's not just that they traded the million dollars for the penny that doubles here. The wicked have traded... They're, they've traded it all for monopoly money at the end of the day. 
they've, they've traded it for nothing. A million real dollars versus monopoly money, it's not worth anything. You're gonna, you're gonna have this all taken. Enjoy it now, because in the end, you will face judgment. That's the psalmist answer. How do I pull myself back? And we all need this. We need to come together. We need to be reminded of who God is. Your mind, as I've told you before, needs to be jerked back to spiritual things, and oftentimes, I get to be the jerk for you. So you're welcome. Glad to serve that role. You need to be jerked back to remember their end, to remember what happens in the end. So what does happen? When you remember God. So we had forgotten God. Now we are remembering God. When you remember God, you know the wicked won't win. It's whatever gains they seem like they have, whatever stranglehold they seem like they have on the power of the world, it won't last. Look at verse 17 or 18. Truly you set them in slippery places. Notice the dramatic words that are used. They're slippery places. They fall to their ruin. They're destroyed in a moment. They're utterly swept away by terrors. They're going to be done. It's not going to last. Now, verse 20 is a little bit mysterious. Oftentimes what I do when I'm studying a text is I'll print the text out just on a piece of paper and I'll, I'll mark it up and just observations and thoughts and that's kind of how I start my process of sermon prep. And I came to verse 20 and I put a big question mark out beside it because I'm like, what do phantoms have to do with what we're talking about here? Um, let me try to bring a little bit of clarity to this. I think the point's actually fairly simple here. He's saying that what the, wick, the wicked are going to be like waking up from a dream. Now, you've had those dreams that were so realistic, you were absolutely convinced when you wake up in the morning that it happened or that it's true. You've ever had that experience? You've ever woken up and you're mad at your spouse or somebody else in your life because of what they did in your dream? And it takes you like a day to get over it. It can seem so realistic. It can seem so compelling. But then one day they're going to wake up and realize it was all a house of cards. There's, there's nothing here. The guy on the yacht in Italy, that's really nothing in the long run. It's nothing. Don't trade it for that. It's going to be like you woke up from a dream and this reality that they thought existed doesn't exist and they're facing an eternity because of the choices that they made. It's not reality. You're gonna despise them as phantoms. This is a little bit of an interesting translational issue. Uh, the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, it has a different translation. Some of you, depending on what you're looking at today, it may read something like this. Like one waking from a dream, Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. So it's a little bit of a difficult translation word, but I, I think the CSB is probably more on target with this. They're, this image, they're, they're not reality, and God is going to stand against them. So when you remember God, you know the wicked won't win. Dramatic words telling us about the way that they will fall. And then lastly, you know that God is faithful to his people. You know he's faithful to his people. In just a moment, we're gonna celebrate communion. And this is always such a good reminder for us to remember that God is faithful to his people. Look at the words. These are, these are tender, kind, compassionate, intimate words. When he gets over this in verse 21, when my soul was embittered, 
When I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. So this is, verse 21 is the psalmist personally transitioning from being embittered to recognizing that his thinking was flawed. Now let me just encourage you with one thing here. If you're in the first part of verse 21, you're walking through this process and maybe your heart is in a little bit of turmoil this morning too, you don't have to pretend like you've made it to verse 23 yet, all right? I'm continually with you and your right hand hold me. It's true, but if you're personally in the midst of this struggle, be honest about where you are with the Lord and he will bring you through it. The psalmist was honest. We just have the benefit of having him walk through the whole process. He hasn't been thinking rightly, but he's reminding himself of what he knows to be true. I do believe, I will believe that Jesus died for me. I do believe that God is with me. I do believe he upholds the righteous. I will believe that. He's reminding himself. I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. You receive me to glory. I don't have anybody else. Where else am I gonna turn? One commentator said this about this verse. He says, there is no interruption in his relationship with the Lord, even in his darkest moments, he is still with the Lord. Isn't that encouraging? Even in your darkest moments, God is still right there. His promises are still true. This summer, I read a book uh, by a guy named Kelly Capick, and it's called You're Only Human. And I enjoyed a particular section of this where he talks about um, God's love for his people. And this will segue us into our time of communion. In our little corner of the theological world, we tend to emphasize things like sin and depravity. And that's right, because we are sinners and we are depraved. And the darker that backdrop is, the more that we can see the diamond of the gospel really shine. But I believe, I believe it's true, all right? I believe it's true and God must justify. But two words, and again, I think the diamond analogy helps, looking at a diamond from different angles to see the different facets. There's what we call justification. It's a legal declaration where God declares that you are innocent based on Christ and his righteousness. Sometimes we'll say something like this. I've probably said something very similar to this. When God looks down from heaven, he doesn't see you, He sees Christ and the righteousness of Christ. I believe that's a true statement insofar as it goes. Similar in the Old Testament, you had the Ark of the Covenant. You know, one of the things that was in the Ark of the Covenant was the law of God, the Ten Commandments. And they would apply the sacrifice, the blood, over the Ark. And so in a a real sense, I think we can like visualize this and say, when God looks down, he sees the sacrifice, not necessarily the broken commandment. And so I think this is true from a justification perspective. All right, I'm all in. Let's start a new paragraph, though. We also need to talk about adoption. We need to talk about adoption. Justification refers to our legal standing. Your adoption into Christ, into the family of God, refers to your standing as a member of God's family. This isn't strictly legal. This isn't distant. God is our Father, I love that. My, uh, I want to preface this comment by saying I have a great relationship with my in-laws, all right? And they're likely to listen in on this today, so I'll hear about it a little bit later. But at that risk, I'm going to say it anyways. <clears throat> when Mindy and I first started dating, 
I got the distinct feel that her dad tolerated me because he really likes Mindy, all right? Some of you that have gone through that can have experienced this as well. He tolerates me because he really likes her. But then I think things shifted over the years. I think some of you, some of us, probably feel that way today too. You, you don't necessarily doubt that the gospel's for you. You don't necessarily doubt that you've been forgiven in Christ. But I think you just kind of think God, God kind of puts up with you because he really loves Jesus. And I just want to tell you, God loves you. Like you actually loves you. I know we learn this like when we're little kids. Jesus loves me, this I know. But have you really taken a minute to think about that? God loves you. He demonstrates his own love towards us. It's not just that he loves Jesus. He does. He loves the Son. Let's be clear. But he loves you so much, and that's why he sent his Son. For God so, what? Loved the world. That he gave Christ for you. God actually loves you. He he really does. And that's what we get to celebrate at communion, is God's love for us and laying down his life so that we can be reconciled to him. Not because you deserve it, not because I deserve it, but because God is loving and he's kind and he's gracious. Well, today we do get to celebrate communion and I'm so glad for that. And just a couple of notes about how we do communion um, here at Sunrise If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we would invite you to participate with us. That means you're confessing the same gospel that we're confessing, confessing that you are a sinner and Christ is a great savior. You're confessing the resurrection is true and you're confessing that forgiveness has really happened. If you are here this morning and maybe you're not sure exactly where you stand with Christ, maybe you haven't committed yourself, maybe you're openly aware and knowledgeable that you don't know Christ, we would ask you just observe today. If you just have questions, we would ask you just observe today and watch and listen. Arena's gonna play uh, instrumental here for a moment. If you need communion elements, there are a couple of baskets um, on the sides. There are little cups that look just like this. And as we do that, just take a moment and reflect on God's love for you and the amazing gift that we have because of the gospel of Jesus Christ.